Welcome to the Crossing Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for listening. We're glad you've connected with us. Our hope is that God speaks to your heart in a new way through this message. If you're new to the Crossing Church, please feel free to reach out to us by visiting our contact page or by paying us a visit. We would love to meet you. This week's sermon podcast begins in three, two, one. We continue in our series, I believe, uh, this morning, and uh, we continue, uh, uh, it's about the Apostles' Creed, and we're going to look at a subject this morning that makes uh, most people uh, more uncomfortable than talking about politics and religion put together, especially in this year, that's, that really goes a long way. The subject we're talking about this morning is judgment. We want to have a good old discussion on the physical return of Jesus Christ to the earth, not as Savior but as judge of all the earth. Now, one of the core tenets of the Christian faith for the past 2,000 years is that Jesus Christ is going to return to the earth, and he won't come as Savior. He will come as judge. You remember when in Acts chapter 1, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, when he ascended to the Father, uh, the angel appeared and said, you know what? What are you looking in the sky for? This same Jesus is going to come back. He's coming back. And he's going to judge the world at that time. And I've got to tell you something. When we talk about things like that, when we hear that, that Jesus is coming back to judge the, the world, you kind of get the feeling like I had the other day when I'm on the highway, middle of the highway, and I look down at my gas gauge, and it's slightly under E. And you're like, oh. <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of the, the reaction you have when, when, you, when you think about Jesus returning to judge the world. Now, there's a lot of miscommunications and misconceptions concerning that future time. Some people think that the judgment, when Jesus comes back, is going to be limited to, you know, extraordinary, obvious, uh, you know, sinners, those who manifest human rebellion, you know, big ticket sins. You know, uh, the really bad people that engage, you know, in sin. But Michael Horton, after pointing out how in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, uh, you know, he really, he, he, basically he says, you know, everybody, every person, not just big sinners, every single person is kind of in a single basket of deplorables, my words, not his. And, and he said this, he said, sin is a condition from which none of us is exempt. It's a condition. So see that, that's the problem. It's not the acts itself, and it's not only the acts. It's the fact of the matter is that we are Sinners. It's not merely what we do, it's who we are. And the Bible teaches that just as Jesus came not to, to judge in his first go-round, but to save his people that first time he came to earth, he's going to return to judge the world. He's going to judge the living, and he's going to judge the, de- the dead by a strict justice. And the time of mercy will be over. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica about this future return and justice. And and you know what? The church of Thessalonica, like so many of the early churches, were being persecuted. And and, you know, they were kind, they were hanging in, they were hanging on. And Paul said, you know what? Don't worry about this. He said this. He said, For after all, it is only what? Just for God to repay with repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven 
with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Now look at this. You know, I can't soft soap this, and I can't pretend it's not here. I mean, just look at the words that he's using. Verse 8, dealing out, this is what happens when he returns, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty, listen, eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. There's some good stuff in there at the end, but you know, that's pretty tough stuff. That's pretty tough stuff. Jesus returned to heaven, as we looked at last time, and after having inaugurated his kingdom, after have, having redeemed his people, the angel said he's going to return indeed in the same way that you saw him go, and when he comes, he will execute final judgment. He will mount his war horse with chariots ablaze, and he will once and for all set the record straight. That's what Paul was saying. That's what the angel said. In Acts chapter 17, uh, he's talking, Paul is talking to the, uh, uh, that group of Athenians on top of the hill. Remember that? In Acts chapter 17, he says this, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because, here it is, He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed. We know who that is, right? Having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Folks, have you ever gotten, anybody ever get a traffic ticket? Three? Okay, yeah, all right, that's what I thought, all right. Um, you get a traffic ticket, and you know, when, when the, you know, he comes up, you know, first of all, they, they pull you over, and then there's like a five-minute delay, it seems like. It's like, what is he doing? I mean, what, uh, you know, he stopped me, and people are going by, and you're trying to do this in your seat, and uh, uh, he's checking out stuff, and then he comes, and he says, you know, you were going 45 and a 25, and whatever, and then, and then he fills out the ticket, he gives you the ticket, and you throw the ticket aside, you're saying all these kinds of things that you're so glad that you're not being microphoned at that point, especially as a Christian, and then, you know, when you get home, you look at the ticket, and it's, the ticket says a couple of things. Number one that it says, it says it gives you a date that you're going to appear before the court and you're going to appear before the judge. And then there's another little place, it usually has numbers and letters and then you got to turn around and see what it means. It, 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 it's the charges that he has brought and he's bringing against you. See, that always happens. And there is a day coming when Jesus will return and we must answer for the charges against us. And the Bible says that on that day, the graves in both soil and water will give up their dead and they'll join the living Christ in the court of justice. The writer of Hebrews said this, It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. And listen, you say, well, this is... All right, it's the teaching of some weirdo fundamentalists, maybe. Maybe the Apostle Paul, you know, he was getting older. He was probably very cranky. He's probably angry at a lot of stuff. He'd been beaten up a lot of times. A couple of the apostles, maybe some of the church fathers down through history, all of them obviously angry people talking about judgment and fire and flaming and this and that and the other thing. Folks, I've got to tell you something right now. This was the clear teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. As he sent, remember the, the, uh, uh, the story in Matthew chapter 10, he sends his disciples out on a missionary journey, 
He's sending them out, and he says, you know, you're going to do some great things out here. And he sends them out on a missionary journey, and he gives them these instructions in Matthew chapter 10. He says, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, you know, if they won't listen to you, say to them, I'm so sorry that you didn't listen to me, but you know what? God is so loving and he's so kind, and don't worry about it, because you know what? It's... No, he doesn't say that. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, listen to this. It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that? Remember those two towns? Remember that? It'll be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the what? day of judgment. There is a day of judgment than for that town. That's Jesus. So here's what I want to do. I don't want to spend time... You know, if you're here, uh, you know, if you're a visitor or a regular tender or whatever, and you don't, you don't believe in judgment, you don't believe this nonsense, it's just, you forget it, you know, whatever. Now's the time to take out your smartphone and play Tetris or whatever you play, because, you know, I'm not, I am not going to spend time, uh, and I, I, I don't mean this, I don't mean to have a cavalier attitude or anything, but I, I, don't, I don't have time this morning to try to uh, impress upon you that there's going to be a judgment day. If you look in the Old Testament, if you look in the New Testament, there are reams and reams of verses and teachings uh, to say that, you know, even a cursory reading uh, will, will tell you that there is a day of judgment coming. Now, what I want to do in the time that I have less left when we're talking about the day of judgment is why it's the best thing that will ever happen. It's the best thing that will ever happen. Then I want to talk about why it's the worst thing that will ever happen. It's, it's, you can't even imagine how bad it is. And then really, I guess, kind of, Coming out from that second one, while, why it really is not a troubling thing. It doesn't have to be a troubling thing. So let's get into it right away. Why, why judgment is the best thing? You know why it's the best thing? Because we need it. You and I need it. You and I need the whole idea of a coming judgment. Far from being a primitive, outdated idea that was handed down to us by angry old men, I need to know that there will be a judgment. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, Lee just read it. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, looking at those verses, I know that one of the things that Paul is talking about one of the things that he's addressing right there is the physical body. He's speaking about the new glorified bodies that we will be fitted for, for the new heaven and the new earth. It's going to replace the mortal bodies that we have that was created for this present earth. Our bodies cause us to groan. I don't, you don't have to say amen, but do you agree? Yeah, they really do. Whether it's because of the way you look, you look in the mirror and you say, I don't like the way I look, I don't like the body, I don't like the waist, I don't like this. And psychologically, it causes you grief and it causes you to groan. Or, or physically, by the fact, look, everybody here who's 50 years old or older, you know by the, by the time you reach 50, every quadrant of your body has something hurting. Everything. It's all, it's all true. It's your right elbow you fell on when you were 18 years old on the ice. It's the knee that was surgically repaired because you got blasted on a football field. It's the gift your second child gave you, mom, when you gave birth. And you know, 
I'm not going into all that. And one day, we will have physically bo- physical bodies that will never cause us pain and will never cause us concern. No more low-carb diets. You can't say amen to that. Amen. All right. No more having to work out. No more body pains that debilitate us and rob us of, of, of joy. But when he says, at the end of verse 4 there, when he says, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life, he's not just talking about walking around in our bodies which cause us problems. It's, you know what causes us problems? Walking around this place, and I don't mean the crossing, I mean this world. A big part of our groaning is walking around this life, and he will bring new life. This place uh, causes us to weep. We look at the injustice. We look at people in re- full-fledged rebellion against God. And I have to tell you, if you are anything like me, sometimes when you look at the paper and you watch the news and you see it unfold before you, it just drives you nuts, doesn't it? It just drives you crazy. And here's the thing. Without judgment, without a judge... As far as the psychological groaning that we do because we live here, there's not going to be any relief, even, in, even partial relief to the groanings that this world and this life cause us. Without the knowledge of future judgment, my groanings become oh so much deeper. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? Well, some of you, a lot of you have walked with the Lord. I know some of your stories, you've walked with the Lord for a long time. And, and isn't it true that as you walk longer with the Lord and you see pain and you see suffering and you see people groaning, it's just, uh, it, it just it does something to you, right? I mean, you, well, one time you said, eh, well, you know, that's a shame, but it's, at least it's not me. And now you look and you say, oh, you know. You know, you see somebody on the streets. We're in this, uh, the conference from New York City uh, this week. We had our, our friends from India. And, and there's people on the street people, and they're asking for money, and I'm going, I, I don't. I, I don't know whether I should give to you or, or let people tell me you're going to just take it. I know what you're going to do with it. You're going to put it, you know, spend it on booze. See, that's what they tell us all, all the time. And, but yet my heart is breaking for this person. But years ago, it wasn't really breaking. See, the longer you walk with, with Jesus, the more your heart starts to break when you see. See, your stomach gets in knots. When you see injustice, When you see the sadness, uh, you become frustrated. You become tied up in knots of anger and remorse that, you know what? You're not doing more to help. Sometimes you just look at the world and you just feel feel sad. Last Saturday night, a week ago, a week ago from last night, uh, I wasn't preaching the next day. Remember, Peter Pendel preached last week. So I actually got a chance to stay up like an adult late on Saturday night because I didn't have to get up before dawn's early light. So around 8.30 or 9 o'clock, I was watching, I think I was watching Alabama, Football, they were killing somebody. They're always killing somebody. And then I, around at a commercial, I turned over the PBS, and they were showing the movie, the 1961 movie, Judgment at Nuremberg. So I, it was a movie that I had, I had long knew was around. It had won Academy Awards. It was very, you know, it was one prestigious film, blah, blah, the whole thing, history of, of film in America. So I said, uh, I started watching it, and I was absolutely 
riveted, to be very honest with you. I don't think it would, it would go today. I don't think it would fly today. There's no car chases. You know, there's not shoot them up or anything like that. It's nothing like that. So I don't even think it would, it would reach an audience today. But it did then, and I was riveted. It's a 1961 movie that is set in Nuremberg, Germany in 1947, and it depicts the fictionalized version of the judge's trial of Nuremberg in 1947. There were 12 U.S. military tribunals uh, after World War II, and, and you know, Nazi Germany they basically was on trial. The whole country was on trial, but specifically individuals. And there was one trial where they just brought judges to trial. And these were the judges who were charged with a common plan or conspiracy to commit war crimes. To, uh, they committed crimes against humanity. Folks, if you know history, if you know what was going on there, the judicial system in Nazi Germany put their stamp of approval that sent millions of people to forced labor camps to torture and to mass murder, it is a well-established fact of history. Now, this film, Judgment at Nuremberg, was one of the first films to show actual footage. We, we can't understand this. 1961, it showed actual footage in the film. They're depicting the trial of these judges, of, of, uh, not, uh, of uh, the British and the American troops when they went in and liberated the camps. Some, some guys had, you know, there was, there was reporters, there were press pool with them, and they were taking movies of what was going on in the camps. And the scenes of huge piles of naked corpses laid out in rows being bulldozed into large pits. See, we've seen that. They hadn't seen it in 1961, most people. See, they were 16 years past the war. They were trying to forget things. But the scene of that... The description of how the Nazis during the trial even hung children and toddlers on hooks. See, it battered the sensitivities of the American public. And as the filmed footage of the victims, as the pictures of the ovens at the camps, the lampshades made from human skin, the piles of spectacles, the gold fillings that were pried from the dead people's teeth, I once again had that feeling that I have felt so often. Feeling of revulsion. Feeling of, of disbelief. Of, of sadness. But most of all, most of all, a feeling of anger. So much anger. That human beings could and would inflict such monumental fear and pain and anguish on others has never ceased to fill me with white-hot anger. You say, well, that was Nazi Germany. That was a long time ago. Folks, since the end of World War II, there has been mass genocide and massive atrocities that have taken place in many countries that has take, taken the lives of millions and millions and tens of millions of people. In places like Sudan, Tibet, Zanzibar, Indonesia, Nigeria, Guatemala, Bangladesh, Uganda, Burundi, Cambodia, Sri Lanka, Bosnia and Herzegovina, North Korea, Dafar, Libya, Yemen, and presently today in Syria. There is a genocide going on today as we speak in Syria. People think that slavery an unjust and inhumane system that subjugates adults and children alike is a thing of the past. Folks, it ain't. 
According to Benjamin Skinner in his book, A Crime So Monstrous, there are more human slaves in the world today than ever before in human history. UNICEF, the United Nations Fund for Children, estimates that there are 300,000 presently, 300,000 children that are currently trafficked to serve in armed conflicts. They put guns on them. They put them in armies and performing in the sex industry. 300,000. It is estimated that human trafficking in the next five years, as far as profitability, will surpass the drug trade. Human trafficking around the globe is estimated to, depending on who you're reading, to generate a profit anywhere from nine to $31 billion annually in justice. Criminality. Horror. And then, you know, if you want to add to that, There's the everyday, simple, garden-variety injustice. You know, people bringing false charges against an organization because they know the cost of litigation, as far as the organization is concerned, is so high, they're going to settle. They'll, 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 They'll just pay something rather than bring it to court, even though the charges are bogus. Companies do it all the time, and folks, it's becoming increasingly prevalent in churches today, too. Sometimes, you know, all it takes is for a colleague at work to... Throw out a simple, incendiary, false rumor, you know, even though it's not true, to destroy a career. Consider the injustice of a, of a boss who tears into you, a good, a loyal employee, and he tears you down and humiliates you in front of the entire office for a very minor offense simply because he's a small man, but he wants to feel big. Injustice. People using and abusing other human beings. People trampling on what, we should, what should be for them simple human rights that are enjoyed by everybody merely because they are members of the human race, but they're denied it, and it results in untold, un- uncalculable misery. Now, one of the truths of Scripture is that although our reaction sometimes to justice is, well, where's God? Where is God in all this? The fact of the matter is this, that God in heaven not only sees, he not only remembers, but he catalogs every act of injustice and every tear that falls because of those acts of injustice. And know this, one day the great judge will call to account every act that resulted in those tears falling. It must happen because it's part of the nature of God. Justice is part of the nature of God. And folks, you know what? I need that. And you need that. Why? What do you mean? Why do we need to even know that? Because it deeply affects two things about me. It affects both my actions and it affects my attitudes on an everyday basis. First, it affects my actions because, you know, I, I, I need to know that my personal acts of justice seeking for those whose rights are being trampled mean something. See, the, the, the people out there who really, they don't see any judge. They, they look at the throne or, or the judge's bench, and there's nobody sitting behind it. See, they've evolved past the barbaric understanding, but now they're modern, they're informed, they're liberated you know, from religion. When they look at the bench and they don't see anybody seated there, 
Okay? They have to live with the fact that nothing they do really makes that much of a difference. Nothing they do really matters. They have consigned themselves in a way to a meaningless life. Save the children, save the whales, who cares? There is no moral force that ultimately will set their record straight. And folks, if there is no judgment day, then we are free to decide and to do whatever we think is right. I decide what's right. I decide what's wrong. I'm liberated. It's the new thinking. And when men and women are set free to decide what is right and what is wrong, well, there is a word for that. You know what the word is? Anarchy. Doesn't have a, doesn't have a great history. Like, just let me tell you. Anarchy doesn't have a great history. Okay? But more than that, why even bother to stand up for the little guy? Why seek justice? Why try and protect women, the woman at your job? Why try to protect a classmate in school who's getting mentally and socially beat up every single day? It affects my actions, but you know what else it affects? It affects this even more. It affects my attitudes. Let me ask you this. Pretend you are in Syria. Today, you're in Syria. Folks, I have to tell you, let me just fill in a little bit, more than 250,000, 250,000 Syrians have lost their lives in around the last five years or so. More than 11 million others have been forced to flee their homes with whatever they could carry on their backs. 11 million people. Let's pretend your, your home is shelled by forces loyal to President Bashar al-Assad, as they approach your city because they know that inside your city there are a number of jihadist militants that are dug in. And after your home is shelled, you pull your dead child from the rubble. Let me ask you something. What's your reaction? What is your reaction to the aid worker who comes up to you and and sees the anger and the frustration and the murderous rage in your eyes. What is your reaction when they say, now wait a minute, before you do anything crazy, before you do anything rash, violence begets violence. Remember that. Violence really doesn't solve anything. You know that. Just think if everybody takes the law into their, whole, their own hands, what kind of society we're going to have. Now, let me ask you something. Are those statements true? Yeah, I, think, I, I really believe those statements are true. I think they are. Will it make one bit of difference to you whose town was just bombed and whose child was just killed? You know what the answer is? No. Or are you going to seek retaliation and revenge at any cost? Will you, at your, at your earliest convenience, which is right now, pick up a gun or pick up a sword or pick up a stick to fight? And I'll tell you, I'll tell you what you won't be saying if somebody says, you know what? Violence begets violence. Oh, yeah. You know what? I didn't think about that. Thank you. Thanks for reminding me. I forgot. You're not going to be saying that. Let me tell you something. The only thing that will keep you from not lopping off the head of the first enemy combatant that enters the front door of your home, here it is. It is a belief that there is a God who sits on the throne of heaven who is angry at injustice and violence and deception and one day will make a final end when he comes to judge the wicked. That's the only thing that's going to keep you from killing that person. Do you know who says, do you know who says violence begets violence? you know who says it? We do. People in suburbia. We say violence begets violence. Okay, As if... As if saying it is enough to stem the impulse to retaliate against injustice. It's us people in the suburbs, you and me, that's who. 
It's not enough to state the truth without including the fact that there is a God who will one day make an end of it. That's why when we are on the receiving end of injustice, we can take it. You know why? Because Paul said in Romans chapter 12, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. What did he say? We're just going to sweep it under the carpet. Because I'm a loving God. And you know what? At the end, when, 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 on the final day, I'm just going to grab everybody. And stick, we're going to have a big bear hug. It doesn't matter, Hitler or Stalin or anybody else. One big bear hug, you know? A kumbaya moment. He says, it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. That's what keeps me from retaliating and nothing else. That's what keeps me. The only way you will avoid being sucked into the endless vortex of violence and misery and back and forth is realizing that there is a judge in the throne who will one day come and no one is getting away with anything. That's it. The only thing that will stop me from retaliating is knowing that it's, there's a judge. And folks, it ain't me. <laughs> it's not me. And he keeps meticulous records and the Bible says, no one is going to escape. If you don't have a God, if you're here today, you don't have a God. Or if you have some vague, toothless sort of loving God who brushes, as I said, all injustice under the carpet, then when you are really wronged, you will be sucked into a bitterness and an anger and a sense of retaliation because you know what? You're all, you're all on your own. You are defenseless. But you're not defenseless. You're not. We must have a judgment day. If there is no judgment day, there is no hope. There has to be a judgment day. It's the best thing. I need it. I really do. At the same time, it's the absolute worst thing. <laughs> judgment day is the worst thing. And here's why it's the worst thing. Because I can't bear it. I cannot bear judgment day. The next thing we learn is it's the worst thing and a time that, that day of judgment is something that I can never stand up against and I can never bear. Look at verse 10 again. Verse 10 said this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Well, it, it's, it seems to say we had better start doing what a lot of people do, especially as they get older. I find this, people get middle-aged and they start doing this. They start doing really good things, like a lot of good things. They start volunteering, and they're, you know, they're cleaning up around there, and they're, they're doing They're giving money where they never gave money before. They're, they're kind of, I think they're, they're trying to catch up. You know, it's like, it's, like, it's like cramming for the exam. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, like, well, gosh, all right, we've got to do this real fast. You're, you're getting driven to school, and you're looking at the exam, and you're looking at the paper real quick because you should have been studying last night, but you're not studying. You didn't study. So anyway, uh, that, I find that they're doing that. But, you know, it seems that that's what he's saying. He's saying, you know what? We're going to appear before Lord, and, and we're, we're going to uh, be recompensed for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Obviously, God is going to take out his measuring whatever and weigh the good deeds against the bad deeds. And hopefully, hopefully the good deeds are just two ounces. Two ounces, I don't care about it anymore, heavier than the bad deeds. Now listen, Paul was a champion of grace. Champion of grace. He was not saying anything of the kind. <laughs> i got to tell you right now. He was directing his comments toward the human heart. You remember 1 Samuel chapter 16? 
Very famous verse uh, in a different context. God says to Samuel, he said, man looks on the external thing, but what? God looks at the heart. Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, Sermon on the Mount, you know what he said? He said, by their fruits you will know them. He's using the metaphor of a fruit tree. How can you tell, how can you tell if a tree is alive? So someone says, you know, one of those trees is dead and one of those trees is alive. When you go up to it, what are you looking for? You're looking for fruit. You're going to see the, whatever has the fruit, that must be the one that's alive. That's how you tell something that's alive and something that's dead. Does, does the fruit itself cause life? The fruit doesn't cause life. It's, it's an expression of the life that's inside of the tree. That's what it is. The fruit's an indication that there is life. If you go on, for example, in Matthew chapter 25, some, you know, another 19, 16, whatever chapters had, it says that on the last day, God will judge us on the basis of whether we cared for the poor, whether we took, the, uh, we, we took care of the prisoner, and whether we fed the hungry. You say, well, wait a minute, you just, you're making the first point again. You know, God's going to be... No. The point he is making is that there is life in a tree, well, then you're going to see fruit in the tree. There, is a ma- there will always be a manifestation of that life. The reason God looks at the works, you know why? Is to find out what's in the heart. If your heart is self-centered and self-saving and self-righteous, instead of humble, instead of one that knows they are in need of grace and in need of mercy, there's going to be a difference in the way you live if there is life inside of you. See, the key thing, it's always been, always been, Old and New Testament, it's always been, the key thing is life. It's the heart. Now listen, you can fool people. We, you really can fool people. Uh, you could take a bag of apples that you get from Costco. Costco has great fruit. Do you ever get bad fruit from Costco? Never. I've always gotten, it's always good fruit. You get a bag of fruit, a, a bag of apples from Costco, right? And you take them to a dead tree, and you get some little, really nice, thin, green thread. And you could hang it on a dead tree. You know, maybe it's leafing, but it's basically, it's, it's dead inside. It's a lot of times trees will leaf for a while, even though they're, they're dying or they're dead. And you could hang it on, and somebody walking by will say, wow, that tree's alive, but it's not alive. See, we can fake it. We can do all kinds of fruity things as Christians, all kinds of doing things. And, you know, most people would think that we are growing followers of Jesus Christ. You know, you go to the doctor, and he looks at you, and he says, well, you look pretty good. That doesn't mean anything. A lot of times people, people have said to me, I, I feel really sick, and I look, well, you don't look that bad. Here's how the doctor finds out. He puts you in front of the x-ray machine, and when, he, when they put you in front of the x-ray machine, then all of a sudden he can see the sickness. On the final day, when the Bible says, and Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, we all stand before Christ. He will look deeply into us, and there will be no hiding and no masking. No pretending, and no hallelujah amens, no matter how many times we say it, to cover up what is really, really there. He will see us exactly as we are. God looks at the heart. He doesn't look, us, look at us and count up the good deeds and the bad deeds and you know, make a judgment based on that. He goes deeper. What are, your, what are your deeds? Show me what this life is producing. He looks at the heart. In the end, we'll be judged according to our heart. And folks, i got to tell you something. When I say that, we'll be judged according to our heart. That's a little nerve-wracking for me. Can I, can I tell you? It's a little, it's a little scary? Can you, some, some, 
Anybody else? I, I, I think it's really a little bit scary. That we will not be judged by whether we follow the Ten Commandments, but how good my heart is, how unselfish I am, how, how, how pride is slowly but surely being eliminated, how open I am to other people when they come to me, how closed my heart is, how good my heart is, what are my motives, why do I do the things I do, you know, do I, do I do the things I do to put God in debt? Well, God, you know, I did this about 11 good things these last few days. You know, I need some help over here now. You know what? To put God in your debt? Is that why you do it? To feel superior to other people? Folks, i got to tell you something. When I think about God is going to judge us according to our heart, it's all a bit terrifying. Just a tad bit. How will you and I stand in a judgment in which God is looking at my heart first and then my actions? Where he's looking deep down at my motives. You know what we all say? We all say, I, I get your point about the judgment day. Okay, I'll, go, I'll give you that one. You know, it's, you know I, 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 I believe in a judgment day. I need to believe in a judgment day. But I also want to believe that somehow I'm going to pass. I think somehow mm, I just may pass. But then I say, doing good ain't going to do it. All of a sudden, you know, the smile kind of leaves our face. And, and you say to yourself, if doing good isn't enough, then what is? Glad you asked. So glad. I have, a, I have an answer right here. Number three. You know why it's not troubling? You know why it's not a troubling thing, Judgment Day? Because in Christ, we have already had our Judgment Day, if you are a Christian. Paul says in verse 14, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Christian, in Christ, you've already had your judgment day. It's already happened. You know what that means? You know what it means, practically for me? It means that finally, finally, I can get down to business about sin. Because I know that even though I sin, it doesn't affect, it doesn't affect my standing before a holy God. It doesn't. And you know what it means? It means that because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you come to me and you say, I have seen this and I have seen that. And, you know, you talk to this person like this. And I obviously, you know, pointing out some things that just are not good. I don't have to say, well, I, well yeah, I said that. But what about when you said? You remember about two months ago you were with this group and you said, I was there. I don't have to do that anymore. See, you, usually that's my first reaction. But I don't have to do that anymore. Why? Because I know that God loves me. And I know that this person is bringing something out. And God is probably using this person to direct his words to me. And I know that my relationship is secure. So now for the very first time, I can get serious about sin. I can get serious about sanctification. I can get serious about holiness. For the first time. See? I know it's not going to affect my standing with God. That's already been settled. So let's get to work. If God really loves you, if God really accepts you and you know it, you can be absolutely honest for the very first time about your flaws. I can be honest about you, you know, and you could be honest about me. But on the other hand, 
we know we're valued. Even though something's been brought up that shows that we got problems. I know I'm valued. I know I'm loved. Tim Keller from Redeemer Press wrote this. He said, how are you going to get, on the one hand, the ability to be absolutely realistic about your sin and at the same time to be completely comfortable with who you know you are in, in his eyes? Poised, confident, bold. You can because there is a judgment behind us. Yet, at the same time, we know by the judgment ahead of us that God really wants people to live godly, holy lives. So I'm looking to say, I really want to live the life I should, but I'm not at all afraid of failure. The Christian is someone who says this, my judgment is behind me, which means, you know, I know I deserve to be punished. So I'm not going to feel superior to you or anybody else. Yet on the other hand, I realize there will be a judgment. So I can, I can call you out when I think you're wrong. I can oppose injustice, but not oppose injustice out of mere vindictiveness and revenge. Not out of any need to get after you. Not out of any need to, as I said, be vengeful. How are you going to forgive people? How do you forgive people unless you know you don't have a right because you're a sinner to judge others and you don't have the knowledge to judge? There is a judge. There is a judge. He's not you. How do we live with integrity? Uh, you know, how can we be bold and really with our full heart go after injustice? Because we know in the end God is going to win. He's going to win. Your judgment day is past. The world's is still in the future. It's still in the future. So you live with hope. We live with humility. Uh, we live with realism about our own sin, but being completely comfortable knowing the only eyes who really it matters to or should matter to loves me and accepts me and picks me up. And sends me further down the road. The Heidelberg Catechism, which is a very, very ancient document, puts it like this. Question 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It says this, What comfort is it to thee that Christ shall come again to judge the living and the dead? Here's the answer. That in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God, and has removed all curse from me. That's the answer. And you know what, folks? Not only that, but now it says in the rest of the chapter, after verse 10, uh, we're supposed to go out and tell people this incredible, marvelous, liberating news. For he says in verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry, everybody's a minister, the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us, which he is. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have the message of reconciliation. People need to hear it. That need, they need to know 
that they need not be judged when that final day of judgment comes. When he comes again, it will be a glorious, terrible day. Jeremiah 23, verse 5, looking forward to that day in the Old Testament. He says, The day is coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and what is right in the land. The day is coming. See, folks, we need Judgment Day, but we can't stand up under it unless we have hidden ourselves in Christ. Then and only then can we say that our Judgment Day is in the past. Everyone else is in the future. For you, it's already happened.